McDonald's. For you parents who don't speak Klingonese, he's saying people of Earth unite and bring your kids to McDonald's for a Star Trek meal. That's a regular hamburger, fries, soft drink, a McDonald's and cookie sampler, and a Star Trek prize. Oh, yes, five different boxes based on Star Trek, the motion picture, action scenes, jokes, games. He says, take it from a father who knows. His kids love him. McDonald's Star Trek meal available for your kids now. and welcome back to Spotlight, the Star Trek podcast where we look at the Star Trek universe from a non-tricky perspective. I'm Paul Wilson. I'm Liam Dempsey. I'm Matt Brothers. And today we go right back to the beginning of Spotlight itself where we go and revisit the motion picture which is our first ever episode. I'm very excited about this one as I was most excited about the first time we did this. (laughs) Uh, But we're taking a little bit of a different twist on it this time. We're going to be revisiting based on the um, 2001 director's edition which was um, produced by Robert Wise and uh, released on DVD back then. Um, So it's not been re-released yet. We'll go into a bit more about that later. This is the thing I always remember from you, Paul, because you had this very identifiable DVD set forever like nearly since i've known you because it's kind of thick it looks like a vhs because it's got the two discs in a very non yeah. uh in a, in a very basically i think it's made for american audiences who have like all the space on their shelves because yeah. in, in the uk i remember now it's just like space is at such a premium yeah. like uh and uh yeah these are really an iconic in- looking set well they're indulgent <laughs> like these cases and i think there were quite a lot all the criterions uh two disc were these thick cases yeah and uh my abyss my uh you know french connection five-star collection you had yeah. such a variety of singular dvd cases because obviously man you'll remember this you know when we used to visit paul at his house back in the day um when you still lived at home like giant giant dvd i could have moved out years ago if i had to spend them on dvds it was it seemed at the time to be this absolutely towering, vast collection. And yeah, there were so many. Like... You, you kept a spreadsheet which logged uh, removals and yeah. borrowing. Well, and you had all these Region 1 DVDs as well from yeah. America. and there Which was, was so exotic. Yeah, it really did seem like, you know, a whole other world. And the one <laughs> that I really remember is the Total Recall yeah. set. Yeah. Which was a little kind of tin. Yes. Yeah, like Mars tin. It's a round tin, like the base of Mars in Boss's like, planet surface. But they call it round, which just roll off the shelf. So they have this, like, <laughs> see a little cardboard holder just sort of just sitting. And um, yeah, and that just got busted really easily. And so I eventually just took it out and put it somewhere else. But it's just, uh, oh, it was, they were really, times. they were desperate to just do anything, weren't they? There was all these plastic, very clear ones that were like legend. Um, that was one, and um, which just folded out as this kind of see-through thing, and you can't read the back because it's black against clear. <laughs> so you actually have to hold it up against a white wall to be able to read what is actually on the DVD. Well, yeah. The weird thing is, we're actually now sort of returning to those days of really fancy uh, packaging for Blu-ray sets and stuff, because now, of course, the physical media medium is a collector's market completely. So a lot of the people making these prestige packages, like, you know, 
have these beautiful sets that come out. Like I bought. Um, I wish they wouldn't. <laughs> well, yeah. See, I, 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 I absolutely adore the shit. Like in, uh, they're currently re-releasing all of the classic seasons of Dot Two on Blu-ray. Yeah. And for each of those, I've got on the sets, and it is like the most beautiful set like you've ever seen. Like tons of new artwork, the way it kind of opens out, like the booklets. Oh, yeah, but it's oh, it's the regular it's size. It's, it fits the shelf. It's in keeping, isn't it? Yeah, it, it fits the shelf, but it is like the it's it is big. It's like a it's like a hardback book. Right. It's like a big hardback book, and you open it out, and then like kind of thing. But it does it does uh, that sounds that sounds classy. I'm it just is I'm very, feel- for me, I just I think I hate the boxo crap editions of stuff where they just like for for the seventy pounds you can have like you know the, a, a film frame and you can have like you know, Lawrence Arabia a piece of you know a medallion or oh, something. Oh, ones it. where it's like yeah. the DVD and then the box has to be X amount bigger to incorporate one Lego thing. Yeah, one so, rolled, yeah. one rolled up poster. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> Although on that, the, one of the best deals I have had DVD wise was when I got the Indiana Jones trilogy trilogy set. Region three, and that it's still came, yeah, and that came with the medallion from the Wrath of uh, it was made with the finest plastic, yes. Uh, it was good. I traded that with you for something, I remember. I, I, no, no, I don't have that, yes, you do. Although, it's, clearly, I've um, you know, covered it and really held on to it. I think I did a really shitty deal once, which was like, I'll trade you. Mario Kart 64 for perfect store for the perfect store (laughs) (laughs) that was a bad I I, I think clearly the person who was looking after you that day uh, wasn't available (laughs) (laughs) well well, with this episode guys I went and had a little skim through our debut episode and I I love it so much but boy were we rough as fuck at times but uh, there's a a I've re-listened to this episode First 15 minutes, a little bit stumbly, and then... Yes, yeah, once we've chatted about obviously the now, we're fucking primed. <laughs> 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 I'm not sure you can hear. Well, some, some you might the, be. I'm a bit out of practice. <laughs> some of the uh, things we touched upon, uh, I, I've got a few little notes here on things I picked out. Uh, we really do act in that first episode like we're doing the movies and nothing else. We're kind of just like, oh yeah, 13 yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. And then we chat about the TV briefly and we go, oh, well, don't worry about that. Or yeah. <laughs> um, we do end up mentioning the Awesome World's Frozen Peas ad, which we're all huge fans of. And I forgot Amazing. we mentioned it and called it up in that first episode. Well, it would be because Awesome did the voiceover yeah. for the motion picture teaser, wasn't it? Uh, we all very much appreciate the slow burn docking sequence. Paul gave a lot of director's edition history lessons uh, actually within that. So I was looking through, go, listening through going, oh, what in... This is before we watched the film the other night. And it was like, oh, what is it in this episode that you mentioned about the director's cut? And there's a few tidbits in there. Uh, I obviously had my t- uh, textbook bad memory because I think I used to say something like, this film, uh, it started with an overture, right? <laughs> like I already couldn't remember how it began. Um, and yeah, and we all kind of slagged on the, the bad service given to the supporting crew characters, which watching mm. the film again, I think they get a bit more, a better shrift this time, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, that might be down to what you're saying about the director's edition, isn't it, Paul? Because mm-hmm. why don't you tell us why... You thought it was so important for us to this time around when reevaluating the film for the 40th anniversary yeah. to watch the director's edition. I, I think this is the same thing as if, like, you know, I'm I want to put something on the record. I do like Star Trek Five, and I think you know I've, this has been running joke where I kind of like hate on it because you guys like it so much. But I'm just amazed you like it. That's all, um, as much as you do. But I think this be the equivalent of you going, okay, Paul, we've booked 
like Odeon Screen One. We've managed to get a print, Final Frontier. We've got William Shatner in person to introduce <laughs> it's it. It's going to take you. all of this. To and you know, it is going to be up there, warts and all. Like you know, this, this is the best, best fit possible way you can see this. And uh, you see if you change your mind. Um, that is the kind of approach I took today. Oh yeah, last night for um, the motion picture director's edition. So I got the projector out, dusted it off, which has not seen light of day for many months because they did a seance to raise Gene Roddenberry from the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well. yeah, and it just um, yeah, I thought well, put it up as big as possible, and you know the best quality you've got, which is this DVD, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but you know, and then you know, rack crank up the sound and just let it happen and see if you change your opinion. So you know, if you if you uh, you know, like it less, more, or different. Yeah, at least you've seen it. And um, but this was it was specifically the director's edition, wasn't it? Because you mentioned the fact there that obviously the director's edition is only available currently on DVD. Yeah, unfortunately. Or if you buy the iTunes copy of um, uh, the motion picture like HD, you get it as an extra in standard. Oh, what in depth. HD? No, in, in oh, standard. standard depth. You get right. like as an extra thing. They just kind of throw it on so there. So it's still only right. available in, oh, in standard. Yeah, but yeah. the motion picture obviously itself, theatrical cut, is available on Blu-ray. But you were like, you know, yeah, and it's it, annoyingly looks really good um, because it's you know if only you could do you know the, some way of upresing the other bits to kind of make it look good because um you know the Blu-ray does look fantastic and you can see the model work in lots of detail mm-hmm. and um and you can see the scale of it and I think. You know, if you watch that, you still would be more impressed by it. But I think just you need to see the full, like, edit of this film. Because it's not just about special effects. The big thing for me um, is, like, the, um, the the kind of pacing has been addressed, where they've kind of added in the character moments that were cut. So how it was how the editing of Motion Picture went, because they were on such a tight schedule, they, they fired their special effects crew halfway through and then hired, like, everybody who'd done Star Wars, Clutch Encounters, and just said, we've got December 7th, we've got to do this by... And they had to start pretty much from scratch. Um, and so the effects really weren't getting finished to like mm. the last minute and the pitch had been shot and they were having to kind of go back and put in like the spot walk sequence which had been a redo of one they had in the, the original film it was called a memory wall sequence which is that this really slow kind of uh, like ballet between Kirk and Spock in this kind of the brain core of Vija and you can see a bit of it on the Blu-ray or sorry, DVD extras and it just looks terrible um, and it, you know it was completely reimagined so they got all this stuff coming really late in the day so this, the edit of motion picture was running like maybe 130 minutes or something like that but it was all the pretty much like the tv cut of the film which you which got shown in the 80s but then the effects work starts coming in and they just went well we need to make it two hours long so we're just gonna as you add a long effect sequence in five minutes long for example we just cut two character scenes out regardless of kind of how that affects it so that's why when people watch the final theatrical version it's just it feels really off balance because mm-hmm. there's, there's hardly anything of the crew and just lots mm-hmm. of them looking at stuff. Whereas this kind of looks at the balance of that. You know, they have edited some of the, the longer sequences down and you have all the reaction shots where they say, oh, we're out of it. Or like, um, oh, the new shields, they worked. You know, just after things happened because they, they had all these lines recorded just in case the effects didn't work. So they'd explain so what was going on. It, yeah. yeah, but there wasn't any time to trim them off. And um, so it's just, it's just a rough cut is what you, what got released, essentially. Yeah. Um, I think it was done with a day to spare. And then premiered. Jeez. Yeah, it's really interesting watching it actually with your commentary because it, it sounds like, you know, the rare director's cut where there's as much taken away as there is added. Yeah. It still gives it such a different feel. There's lots of trims, yeah. In fact, they kind of, on the, on the DVD, there's a, a one section which just trims and it just is all the bits they cut out. Like, and there's, you know, all random bits of beginnings and ends of shots and, mm. uh, you know, the odd line here and there. And it just makes it just sort of flow a lot better. Yeah. I, I mean, I really like that. Like the director's cuts where they're just, 
essentially feel like we just added in the deleted scenes back in and padded it out can be good or bad, but ones that feel a lot more considered where it's like, okay, so to make the best version of the film, we're adding these moments in, trimming these bits back because maybe they're not as needed as much anymore. It feels like it's really considered. And it doesn't have to just be longer, even though this one is still longer, right? Yeah, yeah. 12 minutes, right? Yeah. No, no, yeah. So the, the motion picture like direct edition only runs like four minutes longer overall uh, from the theatrical. Um, and that includes an extra one and a half minutes on the overture. Wow, yeah, so there really isn't that much difference when you just discount the difference in extended mm. overture. And yeah. yeah, and that overture was was long as well, like, yeah, before we even get to <laughs> get to the film. But, you know, I mean, we, we talked about this in our first ever episode of the feeling of this being a prestige picture. You know, it's like, it's very much, it's so old school in so many ways, kind of thing, you know, and it's directed by Robert Wise, who is an old school director, because, you know, after this, he basically wouldn't direct another film again for like a decade or something um and yeah it, it does it does very much feel like a kind of harking back because watching this for me this is very much star trek 2001 rather yeah. than star trek the original series yeah and i don't just mean the doug chumble special effects um, that give it that feel. I like you know if I had to say what's the bigger influence on this Star Trek the original series of two thousand one, I'd be like two thousand one in a lot of ways. Like, it, it really feels like Roddenberry saw that film. Uh, so because what year is two thousand one? Sixty eight. Yeah. Sixty eight. So that's while the series is still on. It, it just feels like he watched that and went, oh yeah, that's what I you know want to do. That's yeah. what I wish I could do. Because funny enough. In 1968, that is when Roddenberry first talked about a Star Trek motion picture uh, at some kind of convention. Was it as he was walking out of the cinema having seen 2001? Yeah, yeah, right. I've seen a picture of the cinema. But apparently it's some, like, memorabilia-like convention because the the early days of any kind of sci-fi comic book convention were very much just kind of basically, like, memorabilia being sold and maybe a couple of people about uh, from TV shows and stuff. And Gene was there... And he apparently said that he wanted to do a Star Trek film uh, as a prequel uh, for how the whole crew like met. So even back yeah. then, they, yeah, we always I, I know it was like about to be a prequel, and um, but quite funny because years later he poo-pooed the idea of them doing the Academy years. It's like that's ridiculous. Right. It's like, but he came up with it first. He uh, wanted to do Starfleet Academy even then. Like yeah, that always seems to be the thing that like, always comes back to people wanting to do Starfleet Academy. Yeah, um, like it's really. Weird, and you know they still on. really haven't because it was such a no. kind of fit. It was just like ten minutes of like in JJ's one they skip yeah. and go like oh three years later or something <laughs> like they've done it. But yeah, it feels like that to me. Like that's what he was aiming for. Like you know, in terms of saying bigger. And I, if you think about his kind of diktat for Star Trek: Next Generation of this completely like non-conflict, uh, kind of just pure exploration. I think, again, that's very much falls in line with what this film is, kind of thing. Like, you know, in terms mm. of, you know, it's just it's mm. just about the deep vastness of space, essentially. Uh, for me, I, I, I'm watching this for the first time since finishing the entire original series. So when I when, I, when we did the episode last time, I probably had seen maybe five of the oh, original okay. series. Now I've seen the whole run, and I think it makes... The, the balance of the film, actually, is closer to the show than I've ever imagined like okay. because it's it's very heavy you know in its at least in its first iteration on the the three and you know the other characters are kind of just like 
supporting, very much supporting characters. Mm. And they don't really have their sort of character moments till later in the movie series from two onwards. So it, it does feel like, you know, they've kind of kept the position of everybody from the television show onto the big screen. Mm. Um, Although it's funny, you know, because I, I kind of think, yeah, in terms of that, um, I think that is true in a sense, but I think it's also true um, of this is more about Kirk and Spock, which, you know, in the TV series, much as they were they were a trio, it's still, Kirk and Spock were still the focus. And I think this is the same here in terms of McCoy only turns up about kind of like a third in. But McCoy has the, you know, has his role, which is he has in the show, which is that he is the, the, what, the voice of reason with Kirk because he has that great scene where he does chew him up for the way he's treating Decker. And he says, you know, he's the only person that Kirk can hear it from. Like his friend, like nobody's rank outranking him, but McCoy is, you know, his, yeah, uh, just take him aside and just say, you know, you're the one who's doing this. You round getting the promotion down your throat, and um, you know, tells it how it is. And Kirk actually in that scene just goes, you know, and I mean to keep it done, and sort of reflecting on himself. So McCoy has a big part to play in that thing in Kirk's like arc in this film. Well, Kirk, what's interesting as well because in the original series, like you meet uh, Decker's dad, like who was yes, yeah, um, Commodore Matt Decker, who was. Um, I'd gone absolutely crazy when this like machine. I remember that. Uh, yeah, episode, yeah uh, but it's, it's like some universe destroying machine has like gone around and killed Is all it his crew. The Doomsday Machine. Yeah, Doomsday. yeah. He's like. I think I have seen that one. Yeah, he's gone completely out of his mind, and as you would if everybody you know got killed, and um, yeah, it was quite good to see somebody who was really respected in Starfleet, like you know, lose it, and then you kind of think, oh, this could happen to Kirk too. What attacked you? They say there's no devil, Jim. But there is a... Right out of hell, I saw it! Matt, where's your crew? On the third planet. There is no third planet. Don't you think I know that? There was, but not anymore. They called me, they begged me for help. Four hundred of them. I couldn't. I, I couldn't. So they are still tying it to an original series character in the yeah. kind of way that Rafi Khan does by literally yeah. being a sequel to an episode. Not in quite not a, a success, successful or way. Yeah, just being like, oh, here's a new character for the movie, but he has ties. Yeah, he's ties to the original universe. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And, and another thing that beneficiary of this cut is Spock. Uh, you know, in the original cut, you know, his sort of, I, I had a problem with like how it, so I've. Um, out there, like this connection he's having with Vija, and uh, you know, where it sent this signal from space, it's kind of like it permeating his like conscious when he's like, you know, in his sort of zone and he's doing his kind of uh, meditation, he's picking up like this thing. Um, it's so powerful, and you know, he's drawn to it and it draws him back towards it and he finds what he's looking for. I mean, he does the mind meld, and I, I was like, when we watched the lesson, I can't quite make sense of why it's there, um, you know, and um. And they keep on sort of saying, oh, you might betray us and that kind of stuff. And it never gets followed up. But it does. It, he does do the spot walk sequence where he like does take Matt into his own hands and mm. risk his own life. But in the director's edition, it's, it, you know, you get more of the, the sense of why he did that. Because afterwards, there's a scene where um, he's crying and he's finally had the realisation after he comes out of sick bay uh, that Vija's a child. And, you know, I weep for it because it's not able to understand and move beyond like this perfect logic and at that moment he realized you need more than just pure logic in order to become a fully rounded being yeah and he and the first time he embraces his human side and that 
you know, essentially turns his back on that. Where you see Spock at the beginning, he's lost. Uh, trying to you know, trying to fit in with Vulcans, he's kind of turned his back on Starfleet and you know trying to purge the last bit of human emotion fails. And, and by the end of the film, he's back in Starfleet. He's you know at peace with himself, and you see a different spot through the through the films. You know, as a result, yeah. well, his journey in the film is purging his emotions and then rediscovering them, isn't it? Yeah. Or that actually they were never really gone. Yeah. Um. You know, which is which is nice in terms of. I mean, one of the few significant new scenes I believe is the bit that I missed when I was about to go to the toilet um, <laughs> which was you said to kind of Spock that he shows emotion not for us no captain not for us for Viger I weep for Viger as I would for a brother are there any other like significant proper scenes that are new to this edition? Um, I think you get like, um, uh, well, you get a bit more kind of danger at the end where, you know, Kirk says he's going to uh, order the self-destruct, like oh. if it doesn't go to plan. I think that gives it gives it a bit of a time lock, you know, that they will all die trying to stop this thing, which wasn't in the original. But that's because right. the effect weren't finished for that bit and they've, okay. they kind of do that. Um, you get more character moments. There was like um, Sulu and Nuhura get a couple of lines where they kind of like, tell the rest of the crew who don't know who Kirk really is that they say oh he's here we'll probably have more chance of surviving now um, which I thought was a nice touch and it's those kind of little bits that yeah. kind of add on they're working with the new young crew and they're still hanging on just doing their thing and then Kirk yeah. walks in it's like an old buddy just like oh now our old boss is here we yeah. get stuff done but yeah since we watched this for our first episode have you watched it again? no so this is your first time since then? yeah you? no same here okay yeah I have to get either, um, since. I'll keep so, it pure. I'm going to do this pure. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I was surprised by that because I know that you do like it at the end of the day. Like um, I came really close a few times, but... Uh, <laughs> I just really want to. Like, yeah, almost go, go... Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I suppose you could have watched uh, Theatrical uh, Edition, but like you say, it's like, yeah, it's like, we only do track for the podcast. <laughs> um, do you think that watching it as the director's edition had changed your thoughts on the film. Yes. I mean, this is the thing. I wasn't overly aware of the specific changes, and luckily we did have Paul with us as we watched it to kind of point them out. But I could feel the difference, you know. I think you can always feel it. I can feel it. And like I said, when you have a director's cut that takes away as much as it adds, it feels like it's doing a very specific thing. And having not seen it since... Uh, first time around I could kind of just get a more sense and maybe it's because of having more context about everything as a whole because when we started this as we all said like I hadn't seen any of the films apart from Khan and the new ones and done none of the series but now coming to it having seen a lot of the original series and the rest of the films I could find a way a bit better so when I saw it for the first time around I didn't really know I knew I didn't quite like it but I didn't I think it was a bit of a blind rating when I rated it at the end because it was like I don't have any context yet so it's good to kind of see where it fits in here. And I think seeing it on the projector as well was such a good setup because I know it's been having, uh, not direct edition, just the actual film, been getting 40th anniversary screenings at the Prince Charles Cinema in London, I believe. So a big screen experience this definitely is. And this was the closest we could have come to a home version of that. And it is a shame it wasn't in HD on Blu-ray, um, but I think I just deliberately didn't wear my glasses and I didn't <laughs> mind the uh, the pixelation as much. But you don't really get a sense because it is such a grandly 
short film uh, and the slow pace really worked more in its favour this time around I think with a well, you can score. S- you can look at things that are meant to be looked at yeah you know, if it's on a small screen you know you, your patience is reduced I think because yeah. you're you're not able to kind of like take it in yeah and I could feel your pain when there was like moments that are obviously in both editions and you're like oh in HD you can see all the details of this model work and the painting and here it's a bit smushed but you get the sense and I think it it added to the feel that we were watching an old film uh, in the way it would have been presented almost because uh, the the SD projected quality almost kind of mimicked just the film grain. <laughs> it's like that was <laughs> well, our, that's the thing. That's that's our version. I did recently about film projecting back in before, when we was on film most of the time. Um, there would only be like five ten percent of like the uh, prints produced, which would be in A quality. The rest were kind of like nah, they'll do. Mm. And after a few weeks, the equivalent of the resolution is like 720p. So, you know, it deteriorated so much that it just, it looked pretty much Overused, fuzzy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, you know, you've got the projections, maybe not doing it right. So, yeah, so by and large, it's kind of like that was the grindhouse experience that we kind of... Well, yeah, I, I think the closest we came was when we watched um, a 35mm screening of Jaws back in Bournemouth. So yeah. that would have been a print from the 70s, and that was scratchy as hell. Yeah. But it really added to it. And the other one I saw, I saw The Thing once off of uh, an original print, and because so much of that film is in white, yeah. you can just you can oh see God, all of it. But yeah. that, that wasn't as bad as the Jaws one, uh, quality-wise. Well, I watched Alien original print, and that was a much, it got away with it a lot more because it was on black most of the time. Yeah. Watching it on the projector actually was surprised at how good it looked to me in a lot of ways um in the, i think you're right in the sense of it felt like star trek grindhouse it felt like you know one of those uh, screens where they've dug up like the old film print that hasn't yeah. been cleaned up mm-hmm. and they're just kind of blowing some dust off it and, and like, you know, they're just the, whacking uh, it through the projector with the transporter room fuck up scene which is still horrifying yeah, it's right still house. really horrible. Just yeah, that, yeah. Wasn't it the voice on the other end of the ship? Like, what came back didn't live for long or something. Yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, shit. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, that's still effective. Yeah, there was lots of effects recorded for the original version, which they didn't get time to put in. So they were they actually dug those out and laid them on. So they originally recorded the time. Nice. And nothing about the special effects is they were storyboards from the original production, but just weren't able to be completed. Mm. So there wasn't they weren't having to use like, artistic license. Yeah. really for stuff I suppose the one exception to that is Vulcan where you know they for whatever reason when they did the matte paintings originally they kind of gave it a different colour sky to how the show had set it up and so this was a chance to restore Vulcan to actually how it was mm. in canon um, I have I have a soft spot for those dodgy matte paintings though, <laughs> like i got to say um, so yeah, the bits of the rich factual I do like that aren't in this Yeah, but by and large it's massively improved mm. Yeah. so how much of that projector screening did, did it change your view of it than Liam overall? Uh, this did improve my, you know, thoughts on motion picture. Um, the first time I saw motion picture was not for this podcast. It was back in the day because, like I said, the, the films was the thing that I'd seen before I came on. Like, you know, I'd, I'd seen kind of like a, a kind of like scatter of like episodes of uh, original series TNG and DS9, um, literally nothing of Voyager or Enterprise pretty much, like a couple of minutes of the pilots and that was about it. But yeah, it's a smattering of episodes, but the films is the thing that I'd seen all of them just through being a kind of film fan and everything like that, because they were big movies and, you know, wanting to see those. But motion picture, when I first saw it, which would have been on TV at some point or something like that, 
um, was very much like a two star for me. Like you know, I found it like when I first saw it, like proper boring. Oh, like, <laughs> like literally, oh, what the fuck is this? And uh, then watching it again for Spotlight, the first ever episode. I remember it ended up being a two and a half star. And then for this viewing, it is a three star. <laughs> like, oh. uh, it, is a, it is a three star. Like I say, it did improve my viewing it because I think it is a big screen experience film, very much so. Uh, you know, I think if I ever got the opportunity to watch like director's edition in 4K in a cinema I probably would take it at the end of the day like because of the fact that even though you know it's, it's definitely not one of my favourites of the film series um, I think cinematically just in a, a visual kind of sense it is really cinematic really big screen it is a motion picture yeah, yeah. it is yeah it is a motion picture it was the last time Star Trek was this big but yeah. to 2009 because yeah. they were always smaller budgets, so this is the one time it just had like the red carpet out, so it's gonna be as big as you like it. And there's something about quite. This is why I said about I, you told me guys that I said it was like a warm blanket for me. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you said. Like, for me, it is like you want to kind of when you settle down to a roadshow thing, like you throw on the sand pebbles, like you do every week, uh, and uh, you know, <laughs> you basically you get your, you get your comfiest stuff, you put on the biggest screen you got, the sound up, and you just let the overture roll over you. And uh, well, we were all snuggling up, and you and me were saying like, oh. I could fall asleep to this, but not in like a bad way. In a yeah, nice yeah. warm way. And that's yeah. the thing, it is it is that kind of feeling. It's that kind of film yeah. where you do especially like, you know, on a nice big sofa. I'm disappointed you didn't wear your best suits to the occasion. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you do feel you do feel like that, that you could just kind of, you know, drift away like in it, going like, you know, and like I say, I genuinely don't mean that as a criticism. It's the nice kind of feeling. And I but it's the first time I got that feeling yeah. from this film in terms of I didn't feel it before when I've watched it on TV and when I've watched it on Blu-ray, uh, the theatrical cut for the podcast. Like I just felt like it was a bit of a chore. Mm. Like sometimes, Whereas this time I was like, oh yeah, I get the thing of it being mm. nice. I get the thing of it being a car warm bag because it is a visually impressive film. The, the Doug Trumbull special effects, uh, which are incredibly individual and still, I would say personally, still quite mind-blowing and effective in a lot of sequences because I think Doug Trumbull effects, um, you know, obviously also did special effects for 2001. And Coast Encounters. So. And Coast and Tree of Life yep. as well. Um are, are very very singular and individual to him mm. and oh, Blade Runner too that's... yeah did you do Blade Runner as well Silent Running of course is the film that he directed yeah. uh, Mark Kermode massive fan of that one um, and you know there's there's so much personality to them they look like nothing else well I think he directed probably the most effective scene in the film the Spock walk sequence which we talked about where yes. he has the jetpack and it's like the absolute shot on the arm the film needed and Robert Wise was pretty much in his hands, like, and saved the film because at that point, it's the film is like is kind of slow to complete crawl, but it gets the it gets the shot in the eye it needs to get towards the ending where mm. it does pick up again, like um, towards the discovery. You know, when they get inside the feature mm. thing and you know, mystery so begins to be solved, and you do have like that kind of overall, you know, awesome effects where yeah. you're kind of like 
transforms into the next level. Yeah, definitely, because it's taken them so long to kind of get through the ship. Full of grand... Full through the cloud. Yeah, and then inside the cloud. Yeah, and uh, trying to just give you the sense of how big this thing is. But, um, you know, that Spock scene is, like, all all Doug Trumbull. And um, And that is total 2001, that sequence, because it is the Star Trek version of the famous sequence in 2001, where he's... I can't remember what it is he's doing. But it's almost like he's in the face of Hal's red light, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Going for... He's been been spoofed and parodied so many times in The Simpsons, Mm -hmm. and like... Yes, in The Simpsons, where he's in the uh, chair, isn't it? The the vibrating chairs, like, and he goes in the 2001 (laughs) kind of spacewalk sequence. And... It has the same kind of, well, not exactly the same, but similar light effects. Yes. Going, shooting past Spock's uh, close-up profile on him. But, yeah. But yeah. you can see in 10 years the effects have moved on so incredibly, like, from 2001. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah. You know, where they were using quite primitive stuff to get amazing effects then, but now it's just, it feels like in three dimensions. Mm. Yeah. 2001 is a better film, though. Just oh, say well, so, that. I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> You're not But yeah, no, it, it did. It did massively improve my kind of like um, viewing of it. And what I, I think the more important thing is it improved my affection for it because I don't think I had because I never had the affection for the film that you have. Yeah. Whereas now, although I probably still don't like it as much as you do, like I I get the I get the love, I get the affection. Yeah. Kind and of I think like, yeah. it just it makes you work a little harder for the character members. I think you know on the fact if you just take you know look at Kirk and Spock's thing. I think Shatner gives an incredible performance now. In retrospect, I thought he was you know was was a bit more was too irritable when I first watched it because you can't expect him to be the Kirk that, that the series left but he, yes. he actually takes the film to get to that, to that point yeah. it's like the bomb you know Batman Begins or you know the Casino Royale mm. uh, of like the Star Trek show because you know he comes in it and he's been in a desk job he's, he's like doubting himself he's getting this opportunity again but he's already like I've asked direction to people you know he's having to put this great art uh, you know face on for, you know saying he's a real hard ass to Decker but it's only masking his insecurities mm. uh, that he's not able to kind of either get the ship or keep it going. And, you know, to admit that he's got shortcomings as well, you know, because he gets humiliated by Decker, who saves the ship when he changes the thing. Um, you know, there's there's also a shot where um, just as about to do space dock, you see like, Kurt like ripping like the, the armrest. So he's kind of, you know, he's so excited to be like, he's about to launch the ship out again. Yeah. And it's, you know, the little things like that that just, um, you know, when you get to that final scene and they're all on the bridge together and it just feels like, no, now we're going, we're, we're the, everybody's back together. It feels like we've kind of reached 1969. It took, you know, the, these two hours to get us to that point. Well, yeah, I mean, it's no secret for regular listeners of the show um, that I have done a complete 180 on William Shatner, like, you know, throughout um, the making of this podcast. Oh, it's funny. He's really funny too. Will you please sit down? Yes, it is. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sounded correct. Well, every time. <laughs> and that little smile he does when he gives that bit, because that's yeah, the yeah. one I was trying to remember. It's like, yeah, it's just like, you think he's thinking about arguing, and he goes, oh, you're right. And he's like, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Every time he says Spock, Spock. in this film, it's a car. <laughs> like, it's the it is, is the most emotional. Like, it is yeah. so, so good. This one he does about three in a row, doesn't he? But the third, yeah. the third one, when it cuts back to him, he's turned around, so he has to do a Spock. Like probably yeah, yeah. want to spin into it. Yeah. Well, it's because Spock's not reacting the way he should be. <laughs> yeah. He's just kind of like, he, he, like uh, he's just completely blanking him, isn't he? Yeah. Like, well, yeah. But uh, uh, yeah, no, what I wanted to say was, I think Shatner's great in this film. You know, from that opening um, big sequence when they 
are journeying to the Enterprise in dry dock. Like, I mean, he his performance mm. along with the Goldsmith score and the the effects. Um, uh, I mean, kind of like the model work on the ship more than the weird photo effect that's oh, like there the inside shuttle, yeah. the shuttle, which yeah. really odd. <laughs> they to can't this get day. the perspective. Um, <laughs> like he, they didn't fix that for the director's edition. He is so so good in that that thing of the of building the relationship between him and the ship, which I think is like even more amplified in the films than it was in the series. Mm. Probably because the fact that it's like you know, he's had that time away from it. Yes, he doesn't realise, it's just, he, he, in the show, it's the romance, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. like, I don't need a woman, I've got the Enterprise. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so this is it, you've been separated from your one true love for, I don't know, the undetermined, undetermined like number of years, yeah. and now you have a chance to see her again. Mm. And, you know, to think that he was just looking at, like, the camera, or just beyond the camera, and, like, projecting that emotion, is mm. like, Well, and they, they put, the you said on the director's edition, they put the reflection on when he says they gave her back to me Scotty no 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 it's, it's, no? It's, no it's the shot when he sees it front on for the first time they, oh okay they kind of added a kind of like reflection in the glass which is thing. nice it's, I it's a lively touch because it's so yeah. subtle but it's like that's the kind of judging that you know you kind of want to mm. for this just to give it that extra level of um, emotion I think. well like you say like, I think this is definitely this is a kind of masterclass on how to do a director's cut in a lot mm-hmm. of ways in the sense of you know make subtle minor changes that because it should be unless you know unless the film that got to the screen is completely not what you wanted it to be um then you know it's like this is kind of like a perfect way in terms of director being like oh okay actually you know what with like you know 30 years like to think about it i could do this i could do that i could do that just make it a little bit better that really kind of salvage entire characters as well like like we were big fans of the kingdom of heaven director's cut i think that adds like so much you sort of needed i'm seeing it oh i'm seeing it because i because i know although of course, it is on the spotlight of the movie list. Exactly. So, at some point, I may see yeah. it for this podcast. Well, that's a great one for everything it adds back in context-wise. And this one, up to the same degree, like adds so much to the actual characters, I find. Yeah, um, I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think yeah, Kingdom Hearts is a really good example of that. Because that was um, a situation where you know, a released version was perfectly acceptable. Mm-hmm. But there was always a sense that, you know, he they could have done gone two ways. Like... They could have done the modern version of a roadshow because the the DVD is like done like a roadshow with an overture and uh, and stuff like that and intermission, um, and then you go no we will we'll I mean Scott's choice was to go and we'll go the two hour version and uh, it just didn't quite play and I think mm. obviously he had the in contract he'd get a showing of his long version yeah with this it's Eva Green's character isn't it that gets done dirty the most in yeah theatrical. yeah she does and I think also um the Bloom because like, he gets a whole backstory that he's you know the wife's dead and all kinds of things that you know that you see in flashback and why he's sort of at his like lowest point because I don't know any of that in the original um, but uh, you know with this this is a restoration where it's like 30 years ago, I'm going to reinvent it. No, this is to put it back. If I'd had the time, yeah. this is what would have been released, but he had a such a ridiculous schedule. To, to, you know, there was no time to do yeah. it. So it's a miracle anything got released at all because of Paramount would have been sued. Mm. That's almost quite yeah. a shame where it's like director's cuts, just a necessity because the first film wasn't even given yeah. the time it's to not, be finished. It's a, yeah, this isn't a case of revisionism. I think mm. this is a case of fulfilling, yeah, like what could, what the promise of what that material was. Because again, you can't fix some of the fundamental problems of motion picture. It's in the script. Mm. You know, it's not, the balance is, is wrong on it. You know, there is not enough action. 
and there's not enough like excitement for good portions of the film mm. um, and that's just that's a problem with the material so you can't change that so I, I get the feeling that was always like the intention with the story and the way it was shot anyway like the way yeah. it's made to tell that story and it's like either you're in on this or you're not mm. but yeah this cut just kind of makes it a bit easier to get on board with what it's doing I found this quote from one of the writers who works on the film uh, who said, We had a marvellous antagonist so omnipotent that for us to defeat it or even communicate with it or have any kind of relationship with it made the initial concept of the story false. Here's this gigantic machine that's a million years further advanced than we are. Now, how the hell can we possibly deal with this? On what level? As the story developed, everything worked until the very end. How do you resolve this thing? If humans can defeat this marvellous machine, it's really not so great, is it? Or if it really is great, will we like those humans who defeat it? Should they defeat it? Who is the story's hero anyway? That was the problem. We experimented with all kinds of approaches. We didn't know what to do with the ending. We always ended up against a blank wall. And I think that kind of examples the fact that, you know, the antagonist here is one of the main problems with the film in the sense of, you know, it's very much that classic kind of... uh, Stormcloud in uh, Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver <laughs> Server, like, yeah, when you can't see it. And it's just kind of, it, I think that adds a lot to what a lot of people feel is the kind of drag and the boringness of the film is that kind of unseen kind of sense. However, of course. Especially compared to the charisma of Kung. Right well, now. but this is what I, I'd compare it to most the Corbinite Maneuver. Like, you know, in terms of from the original series, which is one of my favourite episodes from the original series, actually the episode that I chose when we did our original series revisited episode. And for me, that is the motion picture done right in terms of that is so tense like all the way through. But it is a similar setup in terms of, you know, really a mainly unseen antagonist. Like, you know, you've literally just got that kind of frozen kind of face occasionally and stuff. They really don't know what it is. The whole thing really is just set on that kind of like, you know, um, on the ship and everything like that. And yeah, I think that does it so, so well. And kind of this is a kind of blown up version and they don't manage to replicate the same level of tension here. I think that is the kind of key problem to the film. Mm. Even when Vija is kind of with them in person on the ship, it doesn't quite know how to uh, derive any tension from that either. Yeah, 100%. And also the director's edition, I would say it definitely seems to add in more... don't even really want to call moments, but kind of shots with the uh, supporting crew, like uh, Sulu, like Uhura, uh, like Chekhov, uh, where they get, I think, you know, they seem they seem to get a few more lines, they seem to get a few more shots and stuff like that than they do in the original theatrical cut. Um, but it's still very much like they are kind of extras, like in the film. Like, it, funny enough, now watching again. Um, having seen Star Trek Discovery the first two seasons I think this suffers from the similar problem that Discovery does in the sense of there's essentially a collection of main characters Mm. like there is here and then 
dotted about there's all the crew who you who are in every episode yeah. who you do know who you're like oh there that's that guy there's that guy like kind of thing like you know um but they really get kind of you know like one line per episode maybe or if that and you know they are just crew members who are completely recognizable um but they're not really getting mm. any kind of big story arcs or kind of you know character moments which you know created an issue mm. in season two when they killed off the character of Arium and they kind of had to build her character from scratch like one episode before she was gonna die yeah. uh pretty much to say like you know the oh, same episode it's yeah it is pretty much pretty much yeah pretty much the same one and you know don't get me wrong I think the writing so basically was... beware if you suddenly start seeing any bits of screen time there yeah, are yeah <laughs> they do the writing was very effective and I, I think they managed to make it just about work but it would have been definitely better if she'd been yeah, a bigger so, character yeah, I think that's that the point. thing it needed to be a bit earlier didn't it I think they all could do it Mm-hmm. I think the next generation sort of solved that problem. It did. Everybody got the love. They got centric episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Very true. You know, you know, Troy had one. She goes undercover as Vonmulen. Like that's yeah. what we've got here. Like, you know, um, um, definitely, Doctor Crusher has one where she's falls in love with a ghost. Uh, <laughs> yeah, these awesome. highlight episodes. Yeah, no, they're not. Day is day. Day is day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder if Wise was going, you know, with this film. Oh, people will know this character from the series, so just having them there's enough. Versus like oh, we need to introduce them, build them up and give them stuff to do for new audiences. It's that thing of just having them, whatever you're saying, just having them there is enough. But it's like going, oh yeah, it's nice to see them and we know them if we know the show. But yeah, in the context of this film, they are just kind of taking that Discovery crew angle of like they're just there. Well, do we think Wise gave a shit about Star Trek? Or do you, because I always watch this film feeling that Wise approaches this film like he does his other films of yeah. this kind of size and stature rather than Star yeah. Trek. Yeah, I think it's only perhaps like Roddenberry's like holding the candle for what Star Trek is yes. the characters. I think Wise is kind of like coming as like a prestige director and is applying yeah, those kind of old school methodology of like mm. uh, you know mounting a big hands production. But I think even this, uh, I think I mentioned in the previous episode, they built more than could achieve because I think there's like only an old hand like him could, could pull something like this together given the constraints. But it was just... I think it almost had, all we could do was hold it together. Mm. Couldn't really put any personal imprint on it. It was just too big, you know. And there's so many effects; it's just a ridiculous number of effect shots that you know you couldn't even see what they looked like till like right near the end. So to get the balance right, yeah, and, I mean, and, and also you know the fact that they were shooting this memory wall sequence, which you know is like doomed from the start. You know, mm. they, nobody kind of thought that. Oh, we have no way of getting rid of wires. So, but we have a scene where we're definitely having them floating around at length. It's like. It just goes to show. I feel like that kind of gives the impression that people um, thought they could do more than they could actually could get away with. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is an it is an ambitious film. It is yeah. an ambitious film, kind of thing. Like you know, in terms of, and it does look, it does often look amazing. But at the same time, I think if you compare it with the original Star Wars kind of thing, like I think much as this is clearly this made on a bigger budget than the original Star Wars and you know it's it's so vast and everything there are some certain sequences like if I think if you go back and watch the original Star Wars now it looks better in terms of in terms of it works it works better visually on the screen kind of thing in terms of you know even if they you know maybe it's not as quite as ambitious in some of its sequences but I think 
in well, terms of... It's got a lot less effect shots, but what it does do with those effect shots is tell the story in, in a really yes, way. the storytelling, yeah. utilising the effects yeah. is beautifully done, yeah. isn't it? Kind of thing. Like, you know, like that, that opening shot of Star Wars, you know, with the ship coming in, you know, it's so, so iconic. And it is just going like, we've got this beautiful model and now we're just going to film it really well and kind of have it go. And it looks yeah. amazing. Like, yeah. yeah. I also think like, um, perhaps the, 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 the look of this film, you know, we've kind of complains about the, the costumes and kind of how drab everything is. Yes. And I think that's, you know, again, that's why he's probably going like for the, you know, for the favoring, the kind of sterile kind of Andromeda strain sort yeah. of feeling, yes. you know, and I think that's, you know, I don't know if Ronbury's idea would be to kind of like drain all the colour out of it because the show was so colourful. I think, yeah. you know, people remember that. I think, you know, there's not even an attempt to kind of replicate any of the kind of like, you know, really bold, mm. bold colours of the show. I mean, is this the 70s version of going dark and gritty? Like with the X-Men movie, it's like, we can't have them in yellow spandex, just give them black leather. Was he going, do away with the colours, we're going to make it like a sterile lab and drum with a strange star and just give them all pyjamas. There was, I think, one scene where it's like um, Ilea's sonic shower where it's like this deep, deep purple, which is like the one time it kind of looked a little bit 60s, mm-hmm. um, you know, in that. I thought, oh, that's the kind of like colour tone that you'd, you'd associate with the show. So they threw us one little bone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, like like you said, I think it's interesting having watched Andromeda Strain since as well, because that really kind of... It's a lot of DNA in there. Yeah, it really, really does like yeah, add a lot of context Extended list. Extended sequence. Because that would have been the last kind of sci-fi-esque film he did before this, wouldn't it? Oh yeah, you said that there was a guy in this who was going to be one of the leads of Phase 2. Yes. We, phase 2, which we should talk about, I suppose is um, the other mooted Star Trek sequel TV series yeah. uh, that they were going to do, um, which they kind, of, cause they kind of flip-flopped around from doing the film to doing Phase 2, like, consistently, didn't they? Because they actually cancelled and scrapped the um, film in 1977, and then once Star Wars and Close Encounters came out, they were like, oh, right, okay, now let's get the film back on because we can make films. Films are hot now. <laughs> um, but for a while, they were intending on doing Phase 2. Yeah, so it was David Gautreaux who, because they couldn't get the Nimoy back for the show, they got a new Vulcan character where he was going to be full on, full Vulcan, I think. And you, full Vulcan. And you see a bit of a screen test on the... Um, on the DVD extras. There's not a lot of footage. I remember when I first watched this, there was a lot more footage of the original um, Phase 2 production stuff, but there was very little. But so they did actually shoot some Phase 2. It's just, just kind of wardrobe tests and kind of like right. camera tests. So you it's get not to, actual and footage. It, it's really close to like the original series like look. Actually. Oh, okay. So it's still quite bold colours, that kind of stuff. And Shatner and co. would have been in it. Everybody except uh, Nimoy. And, and, oh, also, and also Ilea, right. like isn't it? So Persis Combata was was cast in the in it. Oh, okay. So Nimoy wasn't going to do it. No, he only got it reinterested once they said this is a movie. And they really yeah. did recycle these guys and give them the parts in the film. Yeah, I think Persis got the best like role because she's yeah. only got like you know one of the big. She's on the poster of the movie, and uh, you know she had a you know big big part to play in that film. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean that's crazy, crazy isn't she? Was, was relegated to like um you know the. Um, uh, Epsilon 9 uh, comm station officer but he's paired up with someone who's not an actress she was just a secretary God, yeah, that I mean I'm surprised he was an actor to be honest <laughs> like, yeah, like he, uh, I think he's awful like yeah, when you said like oh, this guy no, would have been one of the leads 
Yeah. In phase two, oh, yeah. I was some, some bad casting in some of these big parts. Like, yeah, I think it really because it's so early on in the film. I mean, it's the first humans you see in the film are like not actors. It's just like this is the, the tone you're setting. Mm. Um, I remember, I, I remember as a kid, even kind of going, "Oh, that's I, I could actually tell that this acting wasn't good." And that's yeah, you know, we talk about critical faculties. <laughs> yeah, um, as a kid, if you recognise that, it's gotta be bad. Yeah. Ah. Uh, God, I also I also had my first warning about Phantom Menace not being good before it came out when I there was a, there was a um, yeah, BBC, BBC um, like panorama documentary about like Lucas and stuff <laughs> panorama and, investigates yeah. the shitness of Phantom Menace. No, it was it was called there was another name for this show. It was um it was not Odyssey or something like that or Arena. No. Newsround? No, <laughs> no, 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 it was it was an episode, it was special on Star Wars, and they had they showed film nineteen ninety nine. They showed they showed a clip, and it was a scene where um you know um Jar Jar is interacting with like uh, Neeson and oh, was this the over. first like standalone scene? Yes, outside the trailer, like, outside the trailer, so it's the yeah. first like dialogue that taste of what it, it is. Yeah, yeah. and it was like, uh, <laughs> did you hear that? Now. That is the sound of a thousand terrible things coming this way. If they find us, they will crush us. Blast into a tiny piece and blast us into oblivion. Oh, that's a bad... It just starts bumping on. It's like... I was like, oh my... Your face starts going... Was Neeson brandishing a kosh at the time? (laughs) At that moment, I was like... Something's, something's wrong with Denmark. <laughs> this might not be good. I felt a disturbance in the force. Yeah, I know. It's funny you say that, right? Because I actually, when I was um, a kid, I would often buy the comic book adaptation of big budget movies that were coming out because that well no because yeah because that was the time when there was a massive gap between and there was with episode one there's a two month gap between it releasing the US and release now Um, and you know in that era there was a lot of that and so, what I would do, because I'd be so excited for the film, I couldn't wait. And obviously, it wasn't, well, that's the thing, it was the days before you could like look stuff up on the internet or anything like that. So it's like, you know, you're desperate for information. Well, I would buy the uh, corporate adaptation and read it yeah. before the film yeah. came out. And I did that with episode one. Yeah. And I remember even reading the comic book adaptation. And I should stress the comic book adaptations were always shit. Right. They're never good. Because. For some reason, a bizarre decision was made to always make them really condensed. So they would always be like 64 pages or something like that. And that's it. That's that's your page count. That's what you've got. And you have to fit the film into that. And so, obviously, you know, you've got a two-hour or two-hour-plus film... Like you can't you can't dilute that into sixty four pages. Doesn't get, work. Oh, I need all the galactic intrigue in. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So what they'd have to do is cut out anything but absolute <laughs> essential plot. The pacing would be insane. Yeah. Like in terms of like you know the first panel of like a page, it'd be like you know one minute into the film, last panel of the page like half an hour. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it just they would always crash. So they weren't a good indicator of the quality of the film. Yeah. And they, change, they change the dialogue as well, but like the Star Trek comic with like jumping starbursts. Like, <laughs> no, I think in general they would kind of because they would be based obviously on the script because they'd have to be made in advance, yeah, before the people you tended to see a kind of rough. I guess maybe they showed the artists like a rough cut or something like that, or gave them reference yeah. of like the eyes, but in general they'd be based off the shooting script, I would imagine, and um. 
the episode one one uh, reading that Jar Jar stuck out for me even reading it in comic book form yeah. where I was like what's this character like yeah and you go around Misa Misa like all the time in the comic book yeah. and I was just like even that at the time I was like oh but in my head it was like wow comic book adaptation are always shit yeah. like so you know I, it'll probably be fine yeah I think um, I read the novel as well before I saw the film as well oh okay well, yeah again so that was your version <laughs> often they bring out the novelisation before that although <laughs> I remember when Planet of the Apes came out the Tim Burton remake of Planet of the Apes they released a big they used to do this all the time uh, back then these are all very like pre-internet-y type things or when the internet existed but was not as big as it is now um, where they would release big kind of making of books or like the art of this yeah. film kind of thing, like you know and uh, yeah and they released one for Planet of the Apes and in it it had the entire script of the film apart from the final scene <laughs> because they were this is an early case of protecting against spoilers um, which would have been you know pretty much a non-existent idea at that point <laughs> the secrecy surrounding that ending was insane of like they clearly thought they had the best twist in all of movies ever <laughs> I remember because I told you the story didn't I before on this podcast uh, about like how like I was that was the most thrilling one of the most thrilling cinema experience of my life was waiting for that ending because yeah because it had been built up it had been built up in my head that what's going, something's going to go wrong here something's going to go south and my, my heart was going because I was like it's all going to go wrong here and of course when you finally see it like what like, well, because they were like, just, we've got a better ending than the original, mate. Yeah, like, yeah no, like, and you're expecting someone to top that, and of course you don't get that. But <laughs> I just, I distinctly remember that actually that whole thing about yeah. the build-up had an effect on me in the cinema. So. Yeah, completely. Like, yeah, I remember being a thing of like, wow, this is because I suppose the twist ending had just become a big thing. Don't know, obviously, twist endings existed plenty before the Sixth Sense, but I feel like the Sixth Sense populated the idea of having a twist ending at the end of your film being a thing like before then if you look over films it was it was just like there are twist endings to films but they're just like oh what a great ending whereas that was like oh my god it changes everything and now like you know going forward it's going to be like that and weirdly Planet of the Apes was one of those ones where harkening back that had a twist ending that changed everything um, about the film at the end when you know he finds out they're actually on Earth you blow it um, and now they had to kind of like do something better rather than just the same ending and what they came up with was Ape Cops and uh, <laughs> Ape Cops Abraham Lincoln yeah, 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 as well and it is horrendous like yeah and, and Mark Wahlberg looks as confused as the audience during <laughs> that uh, ending as well this kind of era is uh, you know very clear in my head for me of that kind of like days of getting those comic book adaptations stuff like that and ways of kind of getting teases about films before you would see them of course Star Trek Motion Picture there is a adaptation of that as well mm-hmm. um, yeah the first mean? three issues of the Marvel comic book series mm-hmm. which we read some issues for for the comics of Trek yes. uh, episode I think people you know who want a bit of chance Star Trek you know would be getting their full fill in 79 because this is like the <laughs> yeah. marketing machines in full swings a lot of things riding on this December release date hence why they're rushing it so you, it's the first ever Happy Meal tie-in which you'll have yeah. heard at the opening of our episode. So well then, that's the first ever movie Happy Meal time. Yeah, yeah. It's this. Yes. 
Jesus. Wow, they didn't launch it with Star Wars or something? No, no. Um, Which would be why, yeah, because I was saying off mic that um, McDonald's, in America at least, have actually reissued a bunch of the classic Happy Meals. Um, and I, it must be because they are also having their 40th anniversary yeah, yeah. of that, of yeah, movie it times. It's a nice nod to it being the first beginning of that. Uh, you know, and, you know, helping progress children's diabetes and you know, healthy, <laughs> healthy eating standards. Um, but yeah, it's uh, there's that. There's also the pop up book which I have seen. Tom Stark, previous guest, bought it long. Yes, yeah, which had Spock's eyebrow, which you can pull up. Like, Love <laughs> the pop up book. Um, yeah, obviously, the Marvel tie in, and the, and they actually continued the adventures. So, like in, I assume it's not canon, but it's nice to think that after this film, they didn't all just go back to their desk jobs. They actually carried on some missions between yep. this and Khan. Uh, before Kirk gets back into being trainer, like, you know. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, yeah, so th- there's also an action figure la- range with uh, such great uh, characters. It's, there's, there's actually people like on the bridge crew who are missing from the action figure set, but you've got like Boolean Ambassador or something ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that guy who's gone ass for a head. In the yes, ass head is in this. <laughs> uh, is in the action figure range. Um, yeah, so they had like characters you know and love, like Xanonite, uh, Megarite, Bell. Bel- Beetle Goosian, yeah. we look at this one here, an Acturian. So basically, anybody who's in the crowd scene on the uh, on the recreation deck they gets, get a gets figure. bigger, but no Sulu or her uh, or Chekhov. But they the artwork on those um, figures in terms of the backing board uh, they go on I, is gorgeous. I yeah, it's incredible. Artwork. It'd be great to collect them. Like they they are beautiful. Um, and so yeah, it's. It, I think Star Wars Mania had struck. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read from this website. <laughs> like, uh, but you know, clearly, like Lucas, you know, his getting the uh, merchandise rights, you know, clearly rubbed off on Rodri. He's like, I will make more money than you. <laughs> yeah, but did they allow Rodri to keep the merch rights? Then surely no film company would ever make that mistake again. After or were they just like, don't worry, G, no one's going to want to play with you. <laughs> I mean, you know, I suppose we should probably begin to wrap up, um, really. But I think it's been great seeing it again and kind of, you know, just coming full circle, really, uh, back for the 40th anniversary. And I think because, you know, this film hasn't got an amazing standing in Star Trek fan circles, but I really feel as if, as we've headed up to the 40th anniversary, that it's been reevaluated by a lot of people. And a lot of people are starting to really kind of love it for what it is. Yeah. Also, another thing I would say is that um, there are a lot of kind of fusty old film critics who aren't Star Trek fans, or who weren't, because they're probably dead by now, who think that motion picture is the best best Star Trek film because of the fact that it is the one that is the prestige roadhousey style old school road show not roadhouse a roadhouse a roadhouse like that roadshow picture um, I want to see the roadhouse version of Star Trek directed by a director of the stature <laughs> of Robert Wise and I think they look at it and go it's it's the Scorsese yeah. effect it's the Scorsese like, oh, this effect this is the one for us this is the one our snoots can just have exactly it it, it, like you say right now we're in the you know right in the middle of Scorsese obviously going on this kind of campaign against the MCU and everything like that saying oh they're not cinema and that I think is totally example of that like you know those the filmmakers from that time would have gone 
motion picture that is that's the only one that is like cinema and they would have watched something like Rafa Khan and been up that's not cinema like it's, it's like you know gone like this is uh, th- that is the thing of the more the MCU of its day uh, you know continuing on the story kind of instantly not worth it whereas the motion picture the motion picture there is no comparison but what do these same critics think of Rocky 4 compared to Rocky prestige picture <laughs> well yeah there you go <laughs> Pauline Kale, uh, like she was a very fierce critic, did did praise Trek Two for like um, what while. So yeah. Oh, okay, cool, she cool, did, cool. Yeah. So there is something about there. Did and that's it. weird for her because yeah. she was a famous contrarian. Yeah. At the end of the day, she would often, if you look at most films that were revered at their time, you look at Pauline Kale's review. She's like, yeah. fucking shit, mate. Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to finish off with a plea to Paramount to just release this in a better better version. Uh, quality available so yeah, you know, co-sign. exactly it just needs needs to be seen the best thing because you're like the legacy of this isn't going to endure if you all you put out there is the theatrical because it's it's not going to build any new fans with that version it's just it's it's compromised you put the time and effort in you got bob wise while he was alive to finish it and it should be honoring his legacy to actually like at least put it out as was promised back in like 2000 that uh, they would finish it on film but then they just just thought oh dvds is the future you know, nobody's going to pay their much extra money for it in the cinema. So, you know, it just, that's just, they need to kind of be good, you know, come full circle on that deal and actually put yeah. it out the way it should be. It's a shame they didn't take this opportunity for the 40th anniversary re-release. I think to do it as the director's There coming. is some rumours that it's going to happen okay. right now, but it, like, it's all come very too late. They can wait for the 20th anniversary of the director's cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In 2021. Yeah, I should say there are, there is campaigns online to get this um, a kind of 4K Blu-ray. Uh, I think I'm literally just looking at one of them now. I mean, I think I think there's many, but this is at TMP Blue uh, on Twitter, which is a kind of campaign to kind of get motion picture release of 4K Blu-ray. 109. <laughs> so hey, that is 109 guaranteed. <laughs> Sales, sales, Paramount. Come on, <laughs> it's got to be worth it. But I don't think, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think. I mean, no disrespect to these guys because they're doing, you know, uh, they're doing the Lord's work. Founded by Jerry Kelly, Jerry, you're doing the Lord's work. Um, but I think there are other campaigns going on. I don't think, I don't think yeah. those hundred nine people. The well, yeah, I'd people. rather that campaign get off the ground than release the Snyder Cut. You can find Spotlight. At Twitter, at Facebook, at Instagram, at Spotlight Pod. You can send us a email at spotlightpod at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, that would be really, yeah, really, really great. If you've, when you first listened to Spotlight back in 2016, when we did our first motion picture episode, and you thought, two and a half stars. But now, like us, you reevaluated us like we did motion picture and you've bumped us up to an entire five stars <laughs> like, yeah. like, uh, then Double please yeah. leave a review uh, for us we love to hear them um, but we will be back um, yeah I've got one last bit to say perhaps you might want to add it out but I think if people are really interested in this film and like the history of the Rex edition they should listen to a couple of episodes of the Inglorious Trexperts where they have one of the main posts that was a producer on this edition of the special effects and so has very intimate knowledge of the project and what Robert Wise you know how he had to be almost coaxed into doing it because he actually hadn't watched it mm. since it was premiered mm. he was like that 
I, I just want to put a draw line to that and had to be conversation. No, you need to come back and maybe write this wrong. And so he eventually got really excited about it and that kind of thing. And the, the long journey of this, you know, release. Um, you know, so if you're fascinated about those things, it's really good to hear. And they'll obviously, I think they'll probably point you in direction of how you can support eventual release of this film. Um, yeah, I would have thought so because the guys there, they're they must be involved in that in some way. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think yeah. they had uh, Bill Hunt from uh, Digital Bits, like who's been like part of the DVD kind of community since '97. Yeah, he's been his website. You know, one of the originals. You know, it was kind of like really flanging up the format. And when the studio didn't know what they had and the, you know, the potential of DVD to be like game changer for like mm. home entertainment, um, you know, he was kind of there, sort of sounding sounding that you know the drum, you know, banging the drum for it. Um, and you know, so he came on the show and was talking very much about this as well. Um, so yeah, they got real good industry connects about trying to get stuff released. Hopefully, yeah, I know you're always recommending uh, this podcast big time, man. I, I do need to get on I did listen to uh, the episode with uh, Robert Salen, uh, the guest we we shared with them, obviously because we had Bob on the show as well, uh, which was great, as I would always expect from uh, Bob, raconteur that he is. Um, but I, the thing that intrigues me most is I know that you've said that they have a Gene Roddenberry impression, yes. which is kind of their version of the Ian Fleming from uh, James Bonding. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, pretty good. Which does tempt me towards it. And you said that they they talked about the... Oh, you can also do Christopher Lloyd in the um, Star Trek 3. Amazing. Perfect. Amazing. <laughs> like, and they, you know, Kirk's pretty good. Spock, they can do Nimoy. Like, oh, incredible! Perfect, yeah. I've got, yeah, I've got to check this There's out some, properly. Yeah. And um, I know you said they talk about the the Gene Roddenberry's novelization. They get like Gene back from there to read just passages from it, so, <laughs> uh, and believe it's a treat. So yeah, I, I definitely go check this out. Sounds great. So Inglorious Transpers, yeah, check it out, guys. Um, but obviously, make sure you subscribe to Spotlight first. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, Spotlighters. See ya.